You are listening to the Out in the Open Radio Hour with your friend HB on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7. And um, today we're talking all about voting. It is, as we inescapably know, uh, it is electoral season at this time. And yeah, we wanted to get into that a little bit today. We're going to be talking with a number of people. And right now we're going to talk with Anthony Went, who is a board member at ruralorganizing.org the convener of our fabulous fledgling National Queer Working Group and many other things. Anthony, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, um, so we like to start off just um, allowing you to introduce yourself however you would like. What would what do you want listeners to know about you? Sure, uh, so uh, I'm Anthony. I'm a postdoctoral research associate at Cornell University uh, in upstate New York but uh, I consider myself an Iowa farm boy, born and bred in the cornfields. Um, my research is largely around community-based participatory research methods for uh, farmer mobilization. Um, and uh, I've also been really active in rural queer organizing and that's sort of my focus as a member of the board at ruralorganizing.org. Yeah. Cool. Um, I'd love to hear more about ruralorganizing.org, um, how you became involved, what, tell people more about what that organization is and what y'all hope to do. Sure. So ruralorganizing.org is um, a national advocacy organization that really aims to uplift and celebrate progressive values and and causes and uh, and political candidates as well, um, specifically in America's rural and small town environments. And our work, our rural organizing, is really geared toward revitalizing rural America through um, like community mobilization as well as uh, policy change. And so the agenda of the organization incorporates very diverse themes, you know, everything from, you know, rural livelihoods and representation uh, to, you know, employment, healthcare, social justice, sustainability, and another other, a number of other things. Um, I got involved uh, very early on when ruralorganizing.org was in its infancy. Uh, I was really brought into the conversation on, you know, sort of an initial advisory panel that was really instrumental in shaping, you know, what the organization's vision was going to be mm. right from the beginning. Um, and in particular, uh, as a queer person, I really sought to make sure that this fledgling organization was equipped to meet the specific needs of LGBTQIAA++ people um, or, you know, in rural places specifically um, where representation and visibility is, is often lacking. Um, and so I really continue to advocate for queer livelihoods in my capacity as a member of the board even today. Absolutely, yeah, I think, you know, one thing that drew me initially ruralorganizing.org, which I feel like I've been following online for a number of years and initially was really excited even just to see like, it's so fun, you know, even like flashy, well-designed things that are in rural spaces, like feel nice. Um, but just even the very basic um, premise of the whole organization of, of letting folks know that there are many of us in rural spaces with progressive values and who want to fight for collective liberation and justice and, um, 
putting putting that out there at the forefront. And I think, you know, we saw so much after the 2016 election, so much conflating of rural equals conservative. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of our work at Out in the Open has been pushing against that in a lot of different ways. I mean, for us specifically with a queer and trans lens, but I think putting, continuing to put out there um, that there are many people in rural places and small towns um, who, yeah, are fighting for progressive values is really needed and important. Um, so I'm really glad that ruralorganizing.org exists personally. <laughs> um, there was something else. Oh, oh, and, and I think that overlap provides, um, I guess, an initial way to sort of like start bridging a lot of those challenges. You know, like, I think we also know that we're living in um, times and places that are extremely divided. And I think just having this conversation with someone yesterday, right? Like, like one of the things that can bring us together in rural places, well, I live in the Northeast. And so we have often harsh and snowy winters um, is like, right? Like your car getting stuck in the driveway or something like that. And I think we have a real opportunity in rural communities to come together over um, things that are seemingly apolitical and build on those relationships and turn those connections into things that are political. And so I'm excited about the potential for ruralorganizing.org to help us do those kinds of things too. And, and I think by putting out front um, the progressiveness is, is like very helpful for that, so. Yeah, great. Anyway, monologue about my own interest in that organization. <laughs> <laughs> and we're here to talk about voting. And I, you know, I was saying to someone this morning, like I, I am spending so much time right now talking about and like digging into the nuances of 501c3 related like electoral rules. Um, and so it's like, yeah, the, the, the nuances of what we can and cannot do are like very top of mind for me right now. And those are some of the reasons why we've stayed away from electoral work in the past because um, we are a 501c3 and I think we could, you know, we could do an entire show about the challenges of nonprofit industrial complex rules and how that keeps us from doing things that we want or should be able to do. And yeah, I think getting people to vote in general and talking about the importance of that is something that we can do. And so with that in mind, you know, I know we've, we've gone back and forth a little bit about, um, yeah, just about the positioning of this conversation. And, and I think it's something that, yeah, talking about voting in general is something we often have stayed away from, but feels really important right now. Yeah. So I'd love to hear, you know, what are you thinking about this election cycle? What are your thoughts about voting? Do you vote? Yeah, so um, what am I thinking about? Uh, the agony of the American experience right now. But uh, also, I so deeply recognize the importance of this election specifically. I mean, I, I am a voter, I do vote, but I was not brought up in a household that was political mm. at all, or, you know, I, I was never raised to be a voter or, you know, an aware individual in a, in a political process. And so it wasn't until my adult life when I really started engaging with that. Um, and uh, so that sort of has resulted in me having an overall, uh, lackluster impression of, of voting, um, but also, uh, you know, a really glaring recognition that, you know, this 
is the reality of American democracy now. And the one thing we can all do in is, you know, to cast our, our votes. Uh, I've been just increasingly disenchanted with how blatantly flawed and somehow corrupt a lot of the electoral infrastructure has become in the United States. But uh, that's not an excuse for not voting, you know, like, I think a lot of us wish that there could just be a revolutionary overhaul of this whole process, but that's not something that we can achieve in the next two weeks. You know, something <laughs> that we can achieve in the next two weeks is you know, striving for a glimmer of hope that things will get better and that things will evolve and grow. Um, so that's just been sort of my general thinking. I yeah. um, made a concerted effort uh, this summer to get myself registered to vote, to make a plan, which I think is, you know, the most important thing. If you don't have a plan, it's really easy to not do anything at all. Um, and so I, I've tried to tick all those boxes in due course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's fun. My, so I grew up with, my mom has been a poll worker, like my entire life. Um, and it's wow. so interesting to me. Yeah. To hear, you know, I think that is an unusual experience. And I think a lot of people, um, a lot of people's experience is probably closer to what you described of like, not necessarily growing up as a voter or having that be part of a family culture, um, feeling like it's unimportant. And I think it's interesting, actually, I feel like, especially, I hear that sentiment a lot in rural communities of, um, yeah, just like, this doesn't affect me. How does this matter? You know, the, the like absenteeism of that, which is so interesting in our national political system where a lot of folks in rural areas actually have outsized power in federal elections, both, both at the presidential level and in the Senate, especially. Um, and so I think it's, it's interesting to think about, you know, rural folks are, have less power in so many areas of our lives. Um, and this is one where, you know, I think, I think it's harming us at a national level a lot of the time, but it is a place where us as rural queer people especially can, can step into our power in those places with the knowledge that sometimes depending on where you live, our vote counts for a lot more. Um, exactly, yeah. That's so true. That was making me think about this question about terrain, right? Like I, I think, um, sort of what you were saying at the end of that response of, of just, you know, it can improve and things can get better. Um, just like such a, such a funny, like Dan Savage ism, um, which is not where I'm going with that. But um, yeah, this, this question of, all right, we're not, we're, we are not going to cause a revolution in the next two weeks. And that's not like realistically where we're at um, nationally, globally at this moment either. Um, and so, yeah, getting, getting a little bit of like, what do you think about, say, can you say more about that question of like, what are your hopes for, um, I guess like creating, creating and voting for um, like conditions and terrain that even if it's not the ultimate end goal of, you know, progressive politics that we want to usher in, um, it is, it is an improvement. Yeah, I mean, that's such a, a key point. Uh, and, you know, particularly on the Democrat ticket now, a lot of people are 
really disengaging from Biden specifically, um, you know, as a representative of progressive values. But, you know, I think it's so important to recognize that individual candidates, individual politicians are very much figureheads, you know, mm-hmm. and it's their real or perceived position on, you know, in a party or on the political spectrum from liberal to conservative, that really is a barometer of where our country is at, you know, and I feel that, you know, voting for a particular candidate, even if it's one that you don't believe in, uh, is really appropriate if you understand or appreciate the undercurrent of of morality, of the values that that candidate stands for or that their party can usher in. It's so hard to disentangle this question from the extremely catastrophic two-party system that we're in right now, you know, where, and uh, at this moment, the two parties have a huge gulf between them, bigger than I've ever seen in my lifetime, uh, where it's sort of like not a spectrum anymore, but a binary in, mm. in very, um, in, in very blunt terms. So I feel that it's, it's no, uh, we don't have any excuse to fall into that gray area between, like we have to sort of pick a side this time. It just so happens that the sides are more polarized and mm-hmm. perhaps unrepresentative as they've ever been, but uh, we still owe it to ourselves and, you know, to our comrades on the ground to, you know, help usher in a change, uh, you know, from the inside out, you know, I think we have to work with the system that we're in, at least in the right now to, to make yeah. change happen. Yeah, it was just that the, the phrase like queering the party system was coming to my mind when you were talking about like, just like the very binary nature that we're existing in right now. And I think there is, for, uh, for people on all sides, I think there is a lot of room in the middle um, as there is with, you know, gender and sexuality and all these kinds of things and, and that being, again, I, you know, I'm just like, I think queer people should be in charge of everything, but I think <laughs> uh, like that is that like, that is a great, I think area where LGBTQ folks can like demonstrate a lot of leadership in, in um, I guess just having knowledge and like experience with other possibilities. And I think we're, we're being presented with like a this or that choice. And, you know, we know, um, we know that there's more than that. Um, and in our, in the national political scene right now, it is very binary and those are the options. Um, I'm curious about, I guess, do you feel like ruralorganizing.org and or in your own experience in rural communities that there is more of an opportunity to get into those like middle kinds of spaces and that I guess by by nature of working in rural communities, folks are looking for more nuanced views of things, mm. I guess is a question and then sort of like, yeah, follow on of that of, of what is what are some of the tools and strategies that ruralorganizing.org is using to engage rural voters? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's a very good question. And I I feel that in general, having progressive organizing at all in rural uh, communities really is a neutralizer. You know, it, it really does help to pull the inner edges of that binary closer together, you know, uh, and mm. I think that is, 
so valuable and instrumental. And I'm not behind a lot of the strategy at rural organizing, but that's sort of been my perspective, you know, from a bird's eye view of the importance of uh, of progressive organizing in rural communities. Uh, I know that uh, organizationally, ruralorganizing.org has done quite a lot to um, enable rural Americans to gain awareness of the importance of, of voting uh, and to you know, make sure that people who wish to plug into political processes have the means and wherewithal to do that. And so, um, Leading up to the election, uh, there's been some effort by ruralorganizing.org to em embolden voters to, you know, hit the polls and do their duty. Um, of course, you know, I think we're facing the same sort of nonprofit, you know, <laughs> navigation territory that, that you're dealing with. Um, but, you know, we've been able to really successfully engage with people um, with especially a strong focus on the media. Ruralorganizing.org um, publishes daily uh, news clips, which are, you know, really rural focused and give people a, a really nuanced perspective on the political situation and, and its effects on, on rural communities. And then we've also had a lot of engagement uh, with uh, arts and music as valuable mm. entry points for political awareness in rural spaces. There are some really wonderful rural and or queer uh, artists and, and musicians that are really taking this political moment as an opportunity to uh, to broadcast their message of hope and and vision for what rural America can be. And I think ruralorganizing.org has done a great job of, of elevating those voices in this mess. Yeah, who do you wanna name some of those folks that have been producing great art and music that come to mind? Well, uh, one comes to mind and I, you know him from the Rural Queer Working Group, Joe Troop. Um, is, has been really a pioneer of uh, music that's politically charged and at this intersection of rural community and queer reality. So uh, he's one to keep an eye out for. And um, I, I, it's worth mentioning that he is just one of numerous uh, creators that have really come into their own uh, recently and taken this complicated political time we're experiencing uh, as you know uh, a major motivation to produce work that really gets people going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, one of the reasons I'm asking that question about, about what are the tactics and strategies of ruralorganizing.org is because I think, we, so many of the social movement and political strategies that we have come from and are based in urban areas. And I think it's, it's a huge piece that's missing from our general knowledge and, you know, national conversation about like, all right, what are, what are the strategies that are rooted in and coming from rural places and do they work? Are they successful? Should we try something else? And so I always love hearing, um, about what, how folks are working in our communities and what's working, what isn't. So thanks for sharing some more about that. Um, yeah. We have also found that art, art and music tend to be a good entry point, yeah. 
Yeah, fantastic. And I, I guess I should mention too that another arm of ruralorganizing.org's work that sort of addresses this uh, gap in you know what's what strategies are really working uh, has really been producing some good uh, insights. So like ruralorganizing.org has undertaken really fundamental research about you know what are what is rural public opinion on key progressive issues and you know what are the effective uh, campaign tactics and other sorts of messaging that really get rural voters or rural people interested in um, the political process like you know they've been doing studies on you know yard signage and the effect of mm -hmm. that on you know people's awareness or involvement in in political uh, pursuits in their communities and so that I think that's uh, uh, going to constitute uh, a really important piece of progress for our our general understanding of you know what activates rural people to get it into politics. Yeah, there was, I was remembering um, someone was sharing some of that information on one of the working group calls, I think two months ago, maybe. And, and even just the fact that stood out to me was that from that research, folks were saying that, you know, people in rural communities may and do hold progressive values, but we're not necessarily making those um, available visually or publicly to people in our community. And so, um, like, there could be very many of us that are sharing those kinds of values with each other, but we're kind of keeping it to ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. And even that fact said a lot to me about, yeah, what are things we can do to encourage people um, in our communities just to share what our values are. And maybe some of that is more nuanced. You know, I think it's hard to put up a political sign for some, a candidate who you might not agree entirely with everything that they stand for when you're in a smaller community, you know, you're going to see, people at the grocery store and they're like, you like that guy? Like, what are you doing? Um, so yeah, I, I think, yeah, even mm -hmm. even in that one point, there's, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I mean, I'm just agreeing with you broadly. Like, yeah, it, <laughs> it has potentially a lot of stigma attached to it in a small town mm -hmm. or rural space, you know? Um, I think people, especially coming from you know, this tradition of being, you know, more, closed and and carefree about the political establishment you know these people are really hard to convince to like make a stance and be vocal about their support of their opinions um and so i think it, it there is a lot of stigma attached to uh, you know actively promoting one candidate over another and that gives on workers yeah. a potentially very skewed vision of of what the situation yeah. is like yeah yeah or the other way too, I think, you know, we have seen there is a lot more racism and white supremacy um, in communities of all sizes in this country than was maybe readily apparent, at least to white people anyway, previously. And so I think there's, yeah, more, more to gain, more to lose in smaller communities, um, like publicly stating those kinds of views, I think either way, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, is that kind of information that you were talking about, like the, the fundamental kind of research that ruralorganizing.org is doing, is that kind of information available to folks publicly? Where might people find um, the results of that information and how can people engage with it? Yeah, so um, my hope is that the information uh, and findings will be, uh, you know, fully publicly available. Um, that's not my call to make, but I do know that the <laughs> organization is 
really committed to incrementally, you know, releasing reports and findings that are coming out of that process. Um, so I, I'm sure that in time, a lot of it will be made uh, available and hopefully packaged within, you know, some really thoughtful commentary and analysis about what it all means going forward. So um, stay tuned and <laughs> check yeah. ruralorganizing.org. I'm sure it'll be there eventually. Cool. Great. Um, and what, yeah, I think from you, what's, if you could say one thing to rural LGBTQ voters or potential voters in our rural communities, um, yeah, sort of like what's one thing that you want folks to walk away from knowing? Yeah, well, I guess uh, one thing that uh, I think is just so important right now is to stay hopeful, you know, and to um, be realistic, but to never lose sight of what uh, American democracy should or can be. You know, I think a lot of us are feeling uh, really broken and really, mm. uh, uh, really disturbed by how uh, flawed a lot of these processes may be. But, you know, it, it, I think there is a lot of uh, room for optimism in this, in this equation. You know, we have in some ways been uh, brought so far down by, you know, the current administration in terms of, you know, our securities and our rights and our positions and communities. But at the same time, we've been sort of turbocharged politically and thrust into a, a huge opportunity to make real change happen for, uh, for ourselves and for our communities. So I think that this election is not the end all be all, but it is a really uh, important hurdle and, and stepping stone uh, in, in a much longer journey. And I think now more than ever, we're equipped to, to make that journey. And uh, um, so I, I'm feeling very hopeful and I just hope that you know, rural LGBT uh, voters or potential voters share some of the optimism and, and can keep their morale high and embark on that journey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, the more, the more that we're knitting our community together and the more that we're connected, I think, you know, what we hear from folks a lot in our communities is people feel really alone and isolated. And I think even in this pandemic, the more that we can connect each other, I, I feel like the more hope and energy I'm able um, to take from that experience, even if, you know, things don't go the way that, um, you want them to in your own community, connecting with other folks in other rural places who do share your identity and knowing that um, sort of overall, we can we can support each other in that kind of experience and it's helpful to me. Yeah, I share your, I share your hopefulness. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure why, but I'm there with you. <laughs> Mostly I think at this point, you know, it's like, I mean, we're saying it at, before we started recording sort of like 2020 is wild and like, you know, what else, what else? I mean, I don't wanna bring that upon us, but I feel like um, in some ways it, it feels like, you know, we're, we're close to the bottom here and there is nowhere else to go but up, um, which yeah. I, I guess in many ways is a sense of hope, <laughs> sort of. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a glimmer of hope at the very least. Um, it is a glimmer. Awesome. One question I had was, if folks want to get involved with the um, with the working group, is there a way for people to do that? And if folks are hearing this and saying, I'm interested in that, what should they do? 
Absolutely. Uh, we're always welcoming new members. Anyone who has a, you know, a stake in you know, the rural queer intersection is welcome to come and participate, you know, learn from and engage with the, the content. Um, so I would just recommend um, people who might be interested to go to ruralorganizing.org slash RQWG um, for a bit more information, or you can uh, you know, shoot me an email, ajw258 at cornell.edu, and I'd be happy to um, loop anyone in. Awesome, and we'll put links up to those on the website too with um, this episode, so that's great. Um, Anthony, thank you so much. This has been exciting and invigorating and producing of hope. <laughs> well, thanks so much. Likewise, I mean, I think this is, you know, a really important topic and um, I, I feel optimistic. Set it off into the satellite To make it feel as if it was right To pick the one, maybe the two And in the end, nothing to choose And in the end of days We can see it off in so
vote and um, electoral politics today and continuing uh, in our next segment with Darlene from Down Home, North Carolina. Do you all say Down Home, North Carolina or Down Home, NC? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, Down Home, NC is good either way. We say just Down Home a lot of the time too, honestly, so. <laughs> yeah, sure. cool. Well, thanks for being here and um, yeah, introduce yourself, share with us uh, what you want folks to know about you. Cool, yeah. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so my name is uh, Darlene Azardi. Um, I use uh, she, her, they, them pronouns. And um, so I grew up, I grew up in Lincolnton, North Carolina. Uh, it was a small rural place uh, where I was a bit of an outlier, <laughs> you could say. Um, I, my, my mom's from Iraq, my father's from Iran, so um, it was definitely an interesting um, upbringing uh, being in that area, um, but uh, I now live in Swannanoa, um, which is a little bit outside of Asheville, and um, I, have been, I have been doing community organizing you know, since I was in college, um, as a college student, and we got more into organizing um, through environmental issues and um, you know, social environmental justices and over time, um, <laughs> just it's been a journey of uh, seeing what, what all the interconnections are, you know, from um, voting rights and being in more metro areas to um, you know, being in a rural place uh, for the last, I've been in the mountains of Western North Carolina for the last um, six years uh, after moving, uh, moving to Oregon for a little bit, I came back. And so I spent most of my time organizing um, you know, across rural places in North Carolina from the beach up to the mountains. And um, right now, um, being in Swannanoa, I've just gotten really, uh, into living in the mountains and like homesteading and gardening and learning about herbalism and um, just hiking and, and being in nature and, um, and all, yeah, all the things that go with that. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's good to be here. And um, yeah, just, I always have tried to talk to people about their vote mattering <laughs> as much as possible and I'm glad to have another opportunity to do that. Yeah, totally. Um... I'm already like, oh, I have a million questions for you. Um, and or yeah, I think I think my a lot of my entry to organizing work was through environmental justice and environmental work too. And um, so we can talk about that another time. Um, and of course, everything is connected, as we know. Um, so one thing we try, one thing we try to do in our work and through this show is give um, more illustrations and more examples of organizing tactics and strategies that work in rural communities and, and small places. And so yeah, I'd love to hear more just about the work that um, Down Home is doing, that you're doing in Madison County. And when I was perusing the website, I noticed that, yeah, the, like the relational voter turnout project stood out to me. So I don't know if you work on that project, but I'd love to hear more about, yeah, just what y'all are up to. COVID has obviously been a disaster for politics and, and everything else. Um, but that being said, I think it really pushed organizations in particular uh, to think outside of the box. Um, you know, I think I think organizations have a little more um, to work with, you know, financially in terms of investing in different ways. I think um, the party, you know, is just uh, they're going to do their um, kind of establishment thing, and that's going to be their thing. And um, I think it, I think looking at organizations, we really had to innovate and say like. You know, hey, we can't. Sorry about that. Okay, back to tax. 
tactics, rural tactics. So COVID, so rural places are different generally, right? Um, so rural, rural places are different generally, right? So typically, for example, if you're not in a metro area, you're going to send out an email blast, everyone's going to reply. <laughs> you're going to, you know, Facebook is one of the interesting um, things that is different because in rural areas, you have a lot of people that don't have internet, but those who do, they actually heavily lean in to Facebook and social media platforms as a source of information and engagement. And so that's very interesting generally, right? Because in rural places, um, we really t tend to need to lean into in-person as the one. Right, like door to door, person to person, street corner event, all those things. And when I look back at like the arc of engagement and like who has stayed with me through COVID, it's people who do things in person, you know. Um, but that being said, like down home Madison, the chapter I just started, we launched virtually. Okay, and so you can say things about, you know, kind of the urban rural divide and the transplants and the, and the homegrowns and like, who are the people involved and, you know, who, who, who are the people on the internet, you know, but at the end of the day, the truth is like, everyone's on the internet, right, and we, we know that, and so that's a super, although it seems obscure, it's still a solid avenue for engaging the world. That being said, personally, I think the best way is in person always, but we have been able to launch a chapter virtually uh, in June of this year and maintain um, an endorsement process that's member led, which was awesome because it's like they you know wrote the questions, had the interviews, decided who to endorse and why, um, and which is just really cool to do, especially with working people, you know. Um, but beyond beyond that kind of general like way of organizing. Um, COVID obviously was a complicator of that and that it changed everything and forced us to be virtual in a critical time, you know, um, but one of the, I think one of the good things that was innovated out of COVID um, is the needing to step out of the box that everyone had gotten so comfortable in and really was, you know, depending upon. Um, and so, Specifically with organizational outreach, like we uh, we started a relational voter program, and uh, this is a program that is based on pre-existing networks that everyone has, um, and so it's really great because a lot of times with especially electoral outreach, which I come from more of a C three background, I'm not super electoral, just never really been my thing to be about one person. Um, disenchanted, honestly, when you get to a certain level of politics, um, it's just as part of the game. But that being said, um, you know, in the electoral spaces, it is so kind of cutthroat, numbers-driven data, and and it, this COVID really impacted that because we just weren't able to do that that person-to-person -person outreach we're so used to, and so that's where the relational voter program came in. We're using an application called Empower. I know Sunrise Movement across North Carolina has been using that as well. You know, it's been it's pretty awesome. I mean, I think they've developed it quite thoughtfully 
I think they had a surge in usage. So, you know, they were working through different things about the way they reports and things like that. But at the end of the day, like, anybody can download the app on their phone and use it to talk to people whether or not they match their people in the voter file. So they can just have a list of 10 people that they just have in there as whoever they know them as, or they can go the extra step, which some people, especially in rural places, have security concerns about, about doing that voter file match. Uh, which I try to tell them, you know, if you register to vote, that information is public regardless. That being said, you know, that, that there's one kind of iffy part of that. But outside of that and outside of the Empower app, the concept of relational voting and organizing within your own networks, I think, like, generally the lesson that can be derived from this electoral experience is that that long-term, when it comes from, like, white supremacy and bureaucracy within the movement that that lens is actually like really clouded and should just be like switch you know switch it out um and i just hope that that's something that really stays with organizing for the longer term because like when you look at some of the tactics that downtown was doing like when you combine relational organizing where you don't invalidate people for not knowing a lot of people or you don't put someone on dialogue with you know a kind of consistent semi-consistent negativity being hung up on and stuff like that when you just empower people to talk to who they know plus you're doing things like the deep canvassing where you're going call and we have actually called instead of going door to door and talking to people face to face we're calling people and doing deep canvassing and some of these conversations are like 45 minutes long you know and i'm not gonna lie like five years ago I was like, we don't have time for this. Like, this is ridiculous. And now, like, I have, I totally now understand the, the real depth of that work and the benefit, but it's the long term. You know what I mean? And so is the relational. And that's, that's been a learning curve because you can't just push people to use and exhaust their networks in a way that they're not comfortable with. You have to really respect, like, where people are at with that and not push them. So I think it's just, like, a big lesson in, like, stepping outside of the box and also respecting the boundaries that people have. Um, and I think those are just aren't things that have been really common-based, you know, and it's kind of weird. So in that way, I, I, you know, COVID has been terrible. I mean, I lost some people I love to COVID, but I, I can say, like, that is that is one good thing that has come out of this is just uh, kind of forcing the breaks and the reflection and, like, how do we change this and do this now, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah and I think, I mean, so much of what you were saying was resonating, like, I think. We have the tactics and strategies we see not only in electoral work, but, or, you know, across social movements come from urban spaces and I think don't work as well in our small communities, you know, like long haul. People are not interested in that, right? They want to drop in and do a thing. I think the the relational work and I think, you know, in our work, we find like it's all about relationships. Like that's the fundamental for us in small communities. And if yeah. you don't have that, you don't have anything. So exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, fun. Um, so we're up here in Vermont, um, not hotly contested electoral space usually ever. Um, and so yeah, I'm, I'm wondering, you know, if you can just describe for us a little bit, like, what is it like where you are? Um, how are folks talking about stuff? How are people feeling? Um, does it feel? Yeah, I guess like, does does national and local electoral politics feel very present where you are? Oh my God, absolutely. <laughs> so, I, I mean, obviously presidential elections are just different than all others. Like, you can say in presidential years, the majority of people are on to something. You know, you know what I mean? Even if it's just the president. But, like, I love that 
through down ballot, we really talk to people about down ballot and start at the grassroots level. And that's where we focus on our endorsements. Like we didn't, you know, go beyond state level. Um, and, you know, our, our chapter endorsed, you know, county commission and house and Senate. Um, we actually didn't touch the congressional race with, um, uh, the congressional race with Madison Coughlin, who is, you know, the self-proclaimed Republican AOC, you know, very dangerous candidate. And uh, because we just had to be real, like, yo, we don't have the stakes to throw in on 16 counties as bad as this could be. We just have to be real about that. Um, but, you know, that being said, that race is putting so much more spotlight on North Carolina. It's like the epitome, you know, uh, of that, the, the, just the parallel between the candidates almost could not be any starker. And so um, I think that that has really heightened a lot of people's attention across North Carolina. Beyond that, we all know we're in a swing state. Like, I, you know, I've done a lot of work on redistricting. Most people, if you poll people, state to state compared North Carolinians know what redistricting is because we've seen the process be a sham. We've seen like the salamanders and the snakes and all that that you know creep across our state. And um, you know, and if for those reasons, I think and, and beyond that, like voting rights, like we have constantly been in national and global headlines for the attempts to curb the votes of, you know, specifically as we all, you know, the surgical precision that was used to uh, lock African Americans, Black people, Black Americans out of the polls. Um, and, you know, that also goes into, um, it goes into students, you know, it, it goes into the elderly, especially it impacts rural people with the, the DMVs. We don't have the hours, the accessibility, the transportation to get to those places uh, and of course you know with the whole HB2 situation we have you know with our trans community in North Carolina um, just and then the, the one with the attempt to stop you know gay marriage you know as a queer person and queer person of color in this state I mean I see that unification and, and the need um, you know, to connect those dots and that organizing has been happening since those attempts began after the Obama administration when we began to see the unraveling of so many things that people across political parties care about in North Carolina. Um, and so, you know, again, there are longer term organizations that are doing that work on the ground. Southerners on the ground, you know, is a great one. Shout out, shout out to them for all the work that they're doing across this region. Um, you know, equality in North Carolina is laser focused on um, LGBTQ plus rights in our state. Um, and, you know, outside of that, the NAACP, you know, Democracy NC, all these groups and um, all these groups in the constant presence um, have made for a more engaged electorate and just generally when you have dozens of organizations holding workshops, having meetings and engaging people consistently throughout the year, we are the state of drop downs in terms of electoral work, everyone knows that, but people, people are privy to the difference between that, you know, who's staying around and who's dropping in and they'll fuck with either one of them honestly, but they know who's going to stay and who's going to be there. And so also that, like, you know, we have a rap of, like, being, you know, <laughs> just kind of a, a terrible, ignorant, uh, all-white place. And, you know, in the area I live, it is very, very white, but, you know, it's important that people understand that North Carolina is a diverse place, you know, and it is a lot. It is mostly black and white, but we have we have all people here living in rural areas, you know, especially Latinx people, you know, a lot of times are living out in, in rural communities, um, you know, and, and so I think um, 
I think, again, um, that we have a lot more um, of a progressive strength than we're known for um, in the media. I think that definitely extends into rural places, like the urban-rural divide is, like, the greatest issue facing our state, you know, and the truth is, like, it's like 80 of our 100 counties are rural, yeah, mostly rural, but the undercurrents of those metro areas and the just need for affordable housing has made that very, very mixed. And so when we just think of, you know, a racist white man, when we think about, you know, linking to North Carolina or wherever, um, there's more to that also. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, that the preconceptions about who rural folks are and like what we believe in, I think, yeah, exactly what you were highlighting, I think is that that divide is intense everywhere. And I think communities in the South get that even more intensely, like, especially from folks where I live up in New England of, you know, like we grew up having like all these really like terrible, um, just like things hammered into us about folks in the South. And so I think a lot of our work is about breaking that down for folks in rural places and LGBTQ folks. But, uh, you know, I think folks in the South are up against it in a different kind of way than we are up here too. Like, unfortunately, you know, we're so siloed, but I think that like strengthening that, that rural narrative, you know, nationally, because each rural place in the different regions of this country, you know, they are different. We have our similarities and we have our differences, but I would love to see, you know, a greater, a greater investment in like, in that work and bridging those kind of rural divides, you know, that we have too, um, through this, the popularity of the storytelling, you know, I hope that continues to to stay with us, you know, and not just be something we went into during a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you mentioned a couple things like, you know, DMV hours um, being less available to folks in rural places. I guess, like, at a base level, like, why, you know, those of us in rural communities have less of an impact electorally than urban centers. Um, it's like, why, why do you think it's important for folks in rural areas to engage in conversations about voting um, and to get involved in the process? Yeah, I mean, so like, you know, first of all, just just looking at our, at North Carolina, like we're a majority rural state. So while, you know, while we have less people, we actually comprise the majority of, of the state um, is, yeah, so the majority of our state is rural, and so um, a lot of times, you know, we think, oh, you know, we don't have a lot of power, but we actually comprise most of the political districts in the state, and so I think it's important for everyday people to understand, like, the way that is politics, so when you can win a, a seat on your local town council or county commission with literally 80 votes, that means you're on a runway if you choose to continue your ascent into politics. And I think that's where, you know, people become so disenchanted by who's in there, especially in rural places, because oftentimes they don't get resources, they don't get the attention they need. I don't understand how in the hell someone from a rural district can ignore their own district. The answer to that, though, is that they buy, they're, they're purchased, you know, they, they end up being purchased by these lobbyists, by these industries, and they stop listening. Where did it drop off? I feel like this is like, micro, you know, I'm like, 
rural broadband. Right, here we go. Living it, living it. Living uh, it. You were saying people get bought by lobbyists. Right, and I, so so like you know you have you have people who are from a rural place, and you turn around and you go, so how do things end up like this? It's because they get into state politics, they get into national politics, they they start taking money behind the scenes, and then that different person, you know, within a few few terms span, I mean, doing your one eighty. I mean, you have people going in saying they're going to do one thing, and then all of a sudden it's different. And the answer is money. And the answer to changing that is having everyday people step into the realm. So the dual track consciousness that we really need to you know, settle into and believe is that AL vote counts. The simplest answer to that is why in the hell would people be trying to take your voting rights away if they didn't care, if, if they didn't mean anything? You know, yes, the electoral college is very, very discouraging and does feel like it has the ultimate say. Likewise, the Supreme Court, so let's just not even go there. And let's look at local races. Let's look at state and down ballot. And that's where we're going to make our impact. That's where there's no way to contest that your vote matters. And in fact, we had a downhill member that ran in a, a small county where University, and she would have been the first woman of color ever on town council, and she lost, just like we heard about, you know, the, the hat drop in Virginia, well, she lost to a coin toss, okay? She was tied with a third-time incumbent who wasn't even there at the Board of Elections when we were doing the um, the campus process and counting the provisional ballots. He wasn't even there. They said, which side of the coin you want, heads or tails? They flipped it. She lost the election. So I always tell people that story, because it's a true story. It exemplifies the importance of one vote. And because she carried the name as my friend. And I wanted her to be in that role because she's a good person who would have done the right thing. And the more we turn out and vote for those kind of people, the more we believe we have that kind of representation, it has to start with the local level. And that's the easiest way to get in. You can be nominated in politics, you know, nominated to boards and whatever, but you're going to have to get those votes and you start in the community. And then from there, that's where people can build their reputation and continue doing that work. And, you know, until we have people buying into that process and doing that for themselves in their own community, we're never going to get to this new vision because we're not going to, you know, have the people and the votes that we need to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think so many of us who are coming from grassroots organizing that are you know we are very disillusioned many of us with the electoral process the you know and i think yeah it's it's um this kind of perspective i think is helpful for people to be like oh right we need our folks in those positions i think i think we do ourselves a disservice by saying the only way to build power is through electoral work um and if we can have both of those things and i'm appreciating the way that you're talking about that work because it is um it is relational it is organizing with not even necessarily with like getting folks into office as an end but that that's another tool for building overall power exactly yeah you know like everyone's gonna have you know their different sector and their toolkits you know but but as long as you know we're not organizing you show up and you see your people and you see the work they're doing and you see that you know this group is advocating for this policy change at this level this group is bringing candidates to run for office you know this group is straight up lobbying and advocacy only you know this group is doing community workshops and trainings and it's like yeah, none of it's well, like none of it's wrong. Some of it has st different strengths, 
they all are going to have elements of you know, weakness that are attributed to just the system we're in, you know, nonprofit industrial complex, et cetera. But at the end of the day, like, it's all important. So it's like my game is like, I'm not going to knock anything that can, you know, help us out. Like, just, it, it, it's kind of like, um, like some people really live by astrology by the book. And one of my friends says, I take it, I take what I resonate with and I leave the rest. And so it's so, like, so take what is going to help you and build you up and leave what's going to drag you down. It's just like everyday life, you know? Yeah. You feel inspired by knowing your rising sign? Do it. <laughs> to each their own, always. Yes. That's the yes. way. Totally. Um, what are you all having conversations about, you know, like I, about stopping a coup or, you know, post like mildly post-election, I guess like, yeah, preparing for possible results, like continuing impending rise of fascism. These are, you know, conversations we're having up here and yeah, that and, and what that's like. Yeah, it's just, it sucks that we're in this place, but, you know, as they say, history repeats itself, and, you know, Wilmington race riots, I mean, that was the coup of this country. I mean, so what, I went to school in Wilmington. Say hawks. <laughs> um, but all jokes aside, that was a horrific, I mean, that, you know, taking individual black politicians and business owners, sitting them down and telling them, take the train or we'll kill you. And that's how they, you know, being, being in North Carolina where, again, you know, arguably like the only coup in this country has actually occurred, um, where, again, you know, white men drank whiskey, had rifles, had pitchforks, surrounded a local library and sat, you know, black business owners and politicians down, gave them an ultimatum. That sent shockwaves. It, it decimated black voters in North Carolina. The numbers dropped in the, you know, almost, I think almost a hundred thousand, tens and tens of thousands of them. Uh, beyond that, it had effects across the whole state and this whole region. And it changed everything. And so being in this state, we have a different level of awareness, I think, around that than, you know, certainly in some other places. And so, yes, we have had conversations based on our long-term history. But then again, you know, Governor Cooper in North Carolina, he, was, he worked for Duke Energy for 30 years. So he was an industry uh, pro-industry at all costs, even when, you know, toxic coal ash ponds were leaching into people's water supply, um, you know, hiding, uh, you know, putting chemicals in the water for decades. This is the kind of administration that he had. And the way he ended his administration was by having people go in the, across the 100 counties in North Carolina, um, having an individual from his party go and file fictitious election challenges in every single county across North Carolina. And I was part of the movement to push back against that. Not only did the Democratic Party have people to counter those challenges in each county, but we also called upon, especially the NAACP because of the reach across North Carolina, combined with other nonprofits, and I was with Democracy in North Carolina at the time, um, to make sure we had legal observers in those places to, to 
take action if necessary. And so I think, and that was just in the last major election, it was the last presidential election. So again, <laughs> that's what we're coming from. So we are preparing for whatever the case may be. We don't know what that will be like, but when you have a president as dangerous as this one say, I'm not gonna give up power at all costs, that's a very serious and direct threat. And I, in my opinion, you know, I think everyone needs to be on guard. Um, to be ready for you know what is what can come and we're concerned about literal public safety um you know concerned about what what may happen in the streets definitely concerned about political you know backdoor again election disputes and all that kind of stuff and again it, it shows the need for all hands on deck like we need our people observing the canvases and the boards of elections we need our people on the radio getting the information out to people we did freeze again I swear we're almost done. And then yeah, you're, you're fine. I, you know, I was just saying, again, going back to the all hands on deck, all tools and toolbox, all strategy. We need people at the Board of Elections recording the results of the canvas and asking why or why not are these ballots being counted. Now we have all these different decisions across, you know, across the states. Now you now that uh, ballots can be received until election day. You know, so these changes may continue over the next few weeks. But again, we need people in all spaces. We need people in the streets. We need people uh, in their town halls. We need people uh, you know, doing the recording of the Board of Elections canvases. We just need everyone to be out and and none of us know exactly what's going to happen but we know if we have people out and about to the extent you can with covid it's better than not you know absolutely and i think you know that's it's one reason why it's so important like for organizations like song and the rest of us who have been in our, our communities for a long time like again what we have to rely on in those times is relationships and i know you know it's so much easier to go to folks that you know in those kinds of crisis times and say like all right you know we're going to be at the town hall we're going to go together and call these people if you know them and um yeah it's going to be it's going to be a wild it's going to be a wild time i mean it's already a wild time it's a it's a wild time it's yeah wild time and <laughs> hopefully we can have another conversation in six months and be like things are great um and you know, regardless of the outcome of this election there is still obviously infinite amount of work to do right um, yeah if you had one thing to say to rural queer and trans folks who maybe haven't voted in the past and are thinking about it um what would you say to them I would say that I see you, I hear you, and I'm just asking you to consider um, that taking this one small action does have power and that it can help bring us to a more just you know, world, society, county, state, however you want to look at it. Every little tally mark brings us just a little bit closer to being in a place where you know gay marriage is respected to a place where your ident gender identity is respected it may seem like a long road and i completely understand that but the path is unwinding regardless and we need every single vote because that's another little tally mark just bringing us closer to that majority that we need and I uh, just would say, you know, it's it's beyond politics. It's just about that that faith and that belief. And uh, and if you don't have that, I understand that. Um, but I, I just ask that um, 
So you just, just consider that you do matter, your vote matters, we are in this together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to talk about or share that I didn't ask you about to connect with you? And um, yeah, I hope we can, we can, you know, we love collaborating with folks and I think there's lots of room and COVID is over or, you know, anytime now we're in touch. And- yeah, awesome. Yeah, I, I would love that. And, you know, especially with the deep canvas work, um, you know, that's, that's happening, like, I just see that as, as such, like, it's just such a unique tool to, to try to bridge the divide, like, you know, regardless of what happens in this election, like, we're in that place of needing that so deeply as a society. And it's just, when I think about, like, how we're going to get through this place of division and anger and hurt, I just think that's the only way honestly it is by talking to each other and developing another a deeper understanding and sense of respect um so I, I think that could definitely be an interesting place to um to do some you know some collab and work so cool. Uh-huh. cool all right well it was nice to meet you and to Vermont. i need to go i just come on up and yeah, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, all right. Thanks for listening. Bye. I don't know why. I always lie to myself. I can't deny. And sometimes I get caught up in those lies. Wash away those things I can't deny But I tell them to myself Once a day Till the day I die And I don't know why You sleep in the noon It's cold as hell And I am on the loose to talk with you um yeah uh so you just introduce yourself what do you want folks to know about you awesome 
Hey everyone, uh, really honored to be on Out in the Open radio show here and <clears throat> appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about electoral politics and, and perhaps some other things. Uh, so my name's Mel Baser. Um, I use they, them pronouns in case that comes up. And I am a seventh generation Vermonter from a family of builders and farmers in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Um, and what else? I, I lived out west for a long time and moved back and settled here in Brattleboro about 10 years ago. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a particularly interesting moment that we find ourselves in. Yes, it is. Um, for interested listeners, I actually drove Mel's moving truck from <laughs> the West Coast out over here. Um, and I can't believe that that was 10 years ago. Yeah. I know, we should have yeah. a little party. I feel um, <laughs> grateful to you and Fisher for that act. And I also feel a responsibility for having helped lure you to Brattleboro. <laughs> totally, totally. Important part of this it's, community. Yeah, it's worked out really well. Um, so yeah, I mean, you and I have known each other for quite a long time. And I think mostly in other like non-electoral contexts and, um, yes. yeah, I think I mostly, mostly when I think about you politically, I think about your work as, you know, a longtime grassroots organizer, um, and in a lot of different movements, I'm sure we'll talk about many of them today and um, everything is connected. And yeah, I think, you know, I thought about reaching out to you for this episode because I noticed you talking about voting and electoral politics on social media. And um, a lot of people we want to talk to in this episode are, yeah, folks like us that have been mostly involved in grassroots movement organizing um, and sort of like about the importance of this moment. Um, so, yeah, that's like a, a large opening question, but I don't know what, like, what's coming up for you right now? What's making this different? What are you thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> well, it's a it's the new cool thing to do to vote. Just so you all know, get out there and totally. vote. Totally, Southern New Ground started a C four this year that I was like, okay. Yeah, anyway. yeah. Um, sure. Well, without going too far back, you know, I think I come out of uh, you know an organizing tradition, sort of influenced by. Third world, Marx, third world Marxism and Latin American solidarity, um, immigrant justice. And, you know, ironically, I just got Alicia Garza's new book, The Purpose of Power. And I started um, flipping through it a little bit. And, you know, she's someone who I used to organize with in the streets in the Bay Area. And back when um, I was doing more specifically anti-racist organizing and kind of solidarity work. A lot of the groups that she was a part of and, and others in the Bay um, were organizations that we were either working in solidarity with or in multiracial collaborations with. And it's sort of ironic that, you know, back then we were a bunch of anarchists and Marxists and some combination of, of, of the two. Um, both and, and really focused around um, 
around local community-based grassroots organizing and particularly in the Bay focused around supporting the, um, the, the leadership of working class, poor working class folks and immigrants and folks of color. Um, and a lot of our energy back then, you know, and that was gosh, 20, 20 years ago now, was making those connections between the um, between globalization and and the wars abroad and connecting them to the war at home and particularly the war on folks of color and on poor folks. And so it was it it struck me reading through some of the um, flipping through some of the pages in Elise's book, just her sharing her own experience and and why she's out there, you know, playing a pretty significant leadership role in trying to get people to actually vote and engage in electoral politics. And with the Black Futures Lab, like really trying to um, engage Black voters specifically and, and, you know, reaching out and trying to um, do the, the data collection to find out what are actually the issues that um, Black folks in the US uh, care about and are engaged in and, and want to speak out on. And so anyway, it was really full circle for me um, to, to see where we are here now in this movement and in this moment. Um, and I guess what I want to say is, you know, uh, I've always been someone who's voted. I, I can't say I'm, I'm someone who has put a lot of emphasis on national electoral struggles. I think We've, I've always been um, someone who believed in in local electoral politics. You know, a lot of organizing went went on in the San Francisco Bay Area around around local propositions, and even before that, when I was in college in Oregon, there was a lot of um, statewide electoral fights. And here we are in in lovely Brattleboro, and we're seeing the the. Uh, the organizing in the streets and in the in the um, town meetings and in the select board meetings around um, how do we move our community conversation around police policing and around community safety. So engaging with politics looks different depending on where you are in the moment you're in, um, and I think we're in a really terrifying moment, especially waking up this morning um, mm -hmm. to, you know, the, the, the very real conditions that exist for potentially um, electoral fraud, massive voter disenfranchisement, and um, Trump and the, the administration's reluctance to um, reassure the people in this country that they will respect a free and fair election and a, and a turning of power. So anyway, that was a long-winded rambling statement about how important it is in this moment that we, and, and really it's been, <laughs> um, that we engage in electoral politics. And, and there's more I could say about that, but I wanna let you uh, ask a few more questions, HB, and, and redirect me here. Yeah.
I mean, I've already, you know, this always happens to me. I'm like, now I have 15 additional questions. Sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, something we've been talking about a lot as a staff, and I think this, you know, feels to me like a really ever-present conversation for us here in Vermont. I feel like it feels like an even more present conversation because we have been so protected from COVID relatively here. Um, I mean, we can talk about all the reasons for that, including white supremacy, but um, I guess sort of like, you know, you were you were just saying, you know, organizing looks different depending on the moment that you're in and the place that you're in. And I think a lot of folks here, I often hear people asking, you know, well, what, you know, why does it matter what we're doing here in Vermont? How can I, you know, I feel really disconnected from mass social movements because we're in this small place. And I don't know, yeah, just, I guess some reflections on that. Like what is the mm. usefulness of doing our work here? Yeah, um, well, first of all, and, and I don't know if when you said our work, if you mean electoral politics specifically or just organizing in general. Yeah. Okay, in general, my, you know, my take on things is that, you know, seeing that there's a problem and that there's injustice happening, whether it's on an international, national, state, or local level, noticing it, being aware of it, talking about it on social media, but not actually doing anything about it is a real problem that we have in this country. I mean, it's really easy to post a, um, you know, a, a meme or, uh, you know, turn your profile black or, or you know, put a, a banner around your profile picture or whatever, and, and that's it. But um, I guess I would encourage, you know, and there's, there's obviously that old saying of if you're not part of the, the solution, you're part of the problem, right? I think when it comes to organizing folks and, and as someone who grew up, you know, poor and working class and, and has a lot, of, a, a lot of family here who are not engaged in politics, I think it's really important to approach this work from a place of um, compassion and a place of meeting people where they're at and, and a place of believing in the goodness of humanity which I think is a little hard to do these days, but um, we're not all going to agree. You know, I might have very radical left politics, but I can sit down with my meme, who's French Canadian and have a conversation um, about human rights. And it might, I might not use the same language that I might use in a conversation with, with a, an organizer friend, but but we can find common principles. And the only way that we're going to make any movement towards building um, communities and, and, um, and administrations who actually represent us is to find ways to bridge those gaps and, and have those conversations. And um, so, what I would say to people, and this is sort of my call out to folks, is don't let your fear or your, your anxiety around making mistakes or around not being sure if you're doing the right thing, don't let that hold you up. Do something, do anything. <laughs> 
And my big mantra, and, and this is not how I felt about organizing 20 years ago, but now I'm in my 40s. I have a family, I have a kid, I have a business. I do see organizing differently now, which is it needs to happen all the time, everywhere, wherever you are. And it's a combination of disrupting things that you see happen and being willing to have those hard conversations with folks. Um, and so, yeah, to Vermonters or to people who feel isolated or who feel um, like they're, you know, they're in their bubble, they're doing their thing and, and they're not quite sure how to engage, just look around you. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of pressure in our movement and it's a, it's a challenge to our movement to find ways to be more accessible. If we wanna really build a mass movement, which is frankly what we need to turn things around, we need to find more ways to reach people and more accessible ways for people that actually feel like they can be engaged in politics without being, you know, full-time activists or getting arrested in the streets or, you know, there is a place for all those tactics and strategies. Um, so I'll pause there. There's, there's more I could say about, you know, what some of that work looks like, but, um, but I think, I guess the, the, the plea is that folks not be immobilized because of their fear of doing the wrong thing. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I have, I have been really inspired by you for many years. I think of the approach that you were just talking about that has come to you more recently. And I think something I see you be so skilled at is finding that common ground with folks. And I think I've learned a lot from watching you do that and been like, oh, you know, it's a real opportunity. I think we have in small communities and in rural places to do that kind of work and to put that at the forefront and to find, um, yeah, to find those spaces of overlap with each other rooted in, in relationships and like move from there. Mm. Um, so I'm appreciating hearing more about that from you. Yeah, that is um, a, that is a great, um, you know, back when, back when I was, you know, kind of like a full-time activist or whatever in, in the Bay Area, we didn't have social media. In fact, I, my wife and I were joking about how we first connected on Friendster. It was like before Facebook even existed. And, but there is a, there is a very distinct difference between how organizing looks in urban areas versus rural areas. And um, one of the things that you said that, that I really appreciate, you know, when you're in the Bay Area or you're in an urban center, there are lots of different groups and, and people are kind of anonymous, right? And you can, you can pivot and posture and make these big claims and, and you know, the, the repercussions are different. When you're in a small town and you know someone because, you know, you taught their kid or you worked on their house or you share, you eat in their restaurant or whatever it might be, it's like you have a personal relationship with someone and you might have a great mutually respectful relationship or you know you might have a neighbor for example who you're trying to stay neighborly with yet you have very different um lawn signs in front of your yard so to me small towns are kind of i think 
a great example of where one can practice really fantastic um, locally based movement building because you can't just be like, oh, oh, I was about to swear. You can't just be like, <laughs> screw you, you, you know, right wing, whatever, whatever. It's like, you're going to see these people. And so you have to figure out ways to engage in conversation. And um, it's kind of what we need to do, you know, and, and, and I think social media is a tool. It's, um, it has its pros and cons. It's a little bit of a necessary evil. Maybe it's not necessary. Maybe we should all just let it go. But right now, for better or worse, it's how many of us get our information. Um, and, and unfortunately, some of us, you know, some of us get our information and don't fact check it. But, um, but what it doesn't allow us to do is actually have those face-to-face -face conversations that are based in real relationship building. And that's the part that freaks me out the most about, um, about the way in which our, our movements are engaging right now. Um, mm -hmm. And I think about things like obviously like Black Lives Matter movement and surge um, showing up for racial justice. It's like, these are national efforts with very autonomous locally based chapters and movements and kind of people are self-organizing under these umbrellas using these national movements as a resource and a framework. But that's where we need to be at is like, you know, continuing stay connected internationally and nationally through these webs, but be doing the work in our communities and in our neighborhoods and, um, and you know, sort of building those that um, you know that relationship and that buy-in um, for the long haul. With electoral politics, I was on a fundraiser um, the other other night for uh, was it see the vote or yeah I think it was see the vote um, for where my gay banjo played and yeah um, it was really fun because you know there's a lot of new young people getting involved in organizing. But on that Zoom fundraiser event were people that I was, I saw their names and I'm like, oh, I haven't talked to them in 10 years. And like folks that I had organized with back in the day. And, um, and you know, we're all still in this. We're just doing our things in our different ways and engaging and coming together in a moment of crisis like we're in right now to kind of bring it back to voting we are in a moment of crisis around, uh, you know, it is an emergency. It's a climate emergency. It's an emergency around white supremacist violence and, and you know, police murders of um, folks of color, black folks, and, you know, with the, um, the Supreme Court uh, confirmation, like some of us, are personally impacted by what will come out of this. So families being separated, I mean, just, we all know this. And this is a time where um, I've been reading a lot of the stuff coming out today, just kind of searching for something hopeful. Yep. And I was just reading uh, an organizer from, also from the Bay, who, who was writing about, you know, like we can't limit ourselves this, this constitution that was written, 
most countries have um, rewritten their constitution and yep. it kind of feels like, you know, and the one other thing, like, even though the Trump administration and everything that's happening in our political climate is terrifying, horrifying, feels like a huge step backwards. I actually feel like our movement somehow has never been stronger. And, you know, the point that Alicia Garza is making and a lot of the different organizers who are on a national stage is like, we're not voting for the politicians we like necessarily. We're voting for a, you know, a, a terrain in which we actually have a chance at winning. <laughs> You know, instead yeah. of being constantly on the defense from these attacks, we can create a little bit of space in in national politics where we can actually begin or continue building momentum and movement and and organizing. You know, and if anything, um, a Biden Harris win is going to mean a whole lot of organizing ahead of us. And I guess that's a message I'd want to put out too, is that for a lot of um, our liberal friends out there who think defeating Trump is the goal, uh-uh, like that, they, all the conditions were in place to, to allow for someone like Trump to be um, put in power and then a, an entire uh, a party to stand by and, and enable that. Um, those conditions are still there, even if Biden and Harris win. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, we're 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 putting out this language throughout in the open of of basically like we need to clear away the weeds so that we can see like the pests that are still existing. Um, yes, I love that. Yeah. Um, so we'll yeah we're we're thinking and talking a lot about that perspective too. Yeah, like the work the work is different and we want to actually be able to make shifts as opposed to constantly like being in crisis um i think you know you were saying also like in some ways you feel like our movement has never been stronger uh, my friend marta has been saying for a number of years like yeah this is like the last you know like gasps of the like dying dragon that is like cis hetero patriarchy male white supremacy and like you know it's sort of like yeah, that analogy of like, you know, it's kind of, it's like, that is like an injured cage, like cornered animal that is like violently lashing out. And I feel like in my, in my best moments, like that is the image I can cling to of like, okay, mm -hmm. like there's a lot for us to continue making it through, but I want to believe that some of this stuff is coming down so hard because they know like their time is ending um, yeah. in power. And they're afraid. Um, yeah this like this you know we and yes this the hurdles are significant um mm -hmm. and and it's significant in a, in a way and like and stacked against folks that i think in a way that they have not been in a very long time um so in my in my not best moments i go there but if i can yeah. i feel you know it's almost like you can i i have to keep believing we can get somewhere better together i don't know how helpful this is but when when I bump into folks who have, you know, some sort of relative privilege in the society and they're, you know, and, and we all have our right to feel completely overwhelmed and, and terrified and um, 
you know, kind of throw her hands up, not sure what to do. But then I think about the struggle that like native folks, that um, the black folks, that other immigrants have gone through in this country. And I'm like, we don't, I don't actually feel like it's acceptable to not have hope. You know, like I, it doesn't, I mean, acceptable may not be the right word. It, it just doesn't, um, it is our, I feel our responsibility to engage and to also hold on to some hope because if we don't, we're definitely done for, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, when I, my kid is about to turn eight and, you know, we, we talk a lot about Black Lives Matter and we talk about gender stuff and we talk about, we talk about Trump. <laughs> um, I won't tell you what he says about him, but it has <laughs> to do with like him flying off, being, being sent off in a rocket to some other planet <laughs> where he gets lots of education so that he can, <laughs> the restorative justice approach. Yes. But, you know, and, and it's like, the 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 young people now they're different you know they're they're being brought up in a world where they get the the how important um climate justice is they get you know i mean my kid corrects people on pronouns and mm -hmm. it's just like so whether these dinosaurs want to believe it or not like the change is happening it's going to happen it's inevitable and um they can try and do whatever they think they are going to do to put things in power but this this system is not going to is not going to hold up in this way and so i'm hanging on to that hope and mm -hmm. and belief in in our collective power to to make that happen yeah, absolutely. Um, got a couple of minutes left. Anything that we didn't talk about that you really want to say to folks? Um, hmm. Anything else that's on your mind? I guess I just want to like give out in the open some love. Um, so as a as someone who grew up in Vermont um, in a very uh, homophobic community with openly homophobic teachers and um you know not to mention you know anti-semitic and racist and all these other things but just speaking to my experience um the fact that out in the open exists now and mm -hmm. and you know other groups that you all work with like when i think back you know to being a kid had there been organizations and groups and resources like that like my entire experience would have been so different so i think this is just a shout out to all the people listening to you know donate money and time and resources to groups like out in the open because they literally are you know potentially having a huge impact on you know, young Vermonters and young kids who are queer and trans and, and um, not, you know, growing and, and all the other alphabet <laughs> names, um, not, not necessarily, you know, who are growing up in these like small towns where even though the conversation's changing, like the, 
the discrimination and the, the threat of violence and the bullying and the, it's all still real, it's still there. And uh, so yeah, show them some love and because we need them. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate all this stuff you guys do and mm. the intersectional analysis that you bring, it makes me feel much more proud to identify with the you know, LGBTQI movement when I know that it's folks who are putting out these sort of intersectional um, politics and, and seeing the ways that our, all our struggles are connected. So. Thanks, Mel. Yeah. Yeah. Always, always this the fundraiser. Fun. <laughs> this was fun. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I mean, yeah, there's, we'll have to have you back. I have a million other questions about globalization and social movement history and all kinds of things. So fun. really appreciate Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, really appreciate you spending time. Absolutely. All right, get out and vote and uh, see the vote is looking for volunteers and donations for after the elections. So it's not too late.